Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Airport Wild Podcast presented by Blue Makers Wildlife Management. Um, this episode, President Gary Cook of the World Bird Strike Association stops by the show, uh, tells us a little bit about how he got into aviation as well as becoming the president of the World Bird Strike Association. A lot of really good information for you pilots out there and uh, all you wildlife biologists. So sit back, relax, enjoy today's episode, and uh, make sure we see you next time as well. Thanks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Airport Wild Podcast. I am your host, Brett Jacobson, and today we are joined by Gary Cook, who is the president of the World Bird Strike Association. Uh, Gary is on our show today because apparently my check bounced uh, when I tried to get Sully Sullenberger on, so we got the next best thing, uh, who is also the next best pilot. From what uh from my research, Gary, how you doing today, bud? Doing good, thanks. Yeah, can't <laughs> afford Sully, that's for sure. You know, Sully. I wrote him a personal check to try and get him on the show, and his represent—I told his representative to not cash it until uh, August of 2050. But whatever. Nope, they want their money. Yeah, they do. It's funny how you become a hero and then you make a lot of money at it. <laughs> Or you become a president and you write a book and uh, yeah. <laughs> become oh, yeah. a billionaire. Yeah, so <laughs> is, I'm sure you didn't become a billionaire when you became the uh, the president of the WBA, huh? No, no. It, uh, it didn't happen that way. But, <laughs> so, but one of the few pilots, the last president was a pilot and I'm a pilot. So uh, and that's the first time that's happened in the IBSC slash World Bird Strike Association. Okay. So, Gary, uh, just give us a little brief uh, introduction of who you are. And uh, I know, obviously, from reading your bio, uh, you got your hands in the pot on a couple of different things. So uh, just a real quick, brief background, and then, um, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, first myself, yeah, I've been, uh, I've been a pilot for 40, over 40 years now. Uh, grew up in a family of pilots, so that's all I've ever known. Um, went in the military right out of college and um, flew C-5s for 28 years in the military. And then uh, after a few years in the active duty, went to the reserves to fly C-5s. And uh, that's when I was looking for my airline jobs. I bankrupted three different airlines, uh, flown for, done airline flying, corporate flying, private flying, commercial flying, all different kinds, um, <clears throat> kind of experience in all. Uh, I got involved with the birds through safety work with the Air Force. I was a safety officer in the Air Force, and my mentor, a guy named Dave Moore, who uh, was very uh, adamant about educating pilots on bird strike uh, risks and mitigations, and um, <clears throat> he did a, I thought he did a great job. <clears throat> so I got involved with learning about birds and bird strike mitigation through him. My first bird strike USA conference was up in Vancouver in the mid 2000s. Um, that's where I 
went up there to represent the military and I kind of sit in the audience, I noticed, well, I'm one of the few pilots that am involved in this arena. It's mainly wildlife biologists, airport operators. That's 90% of what, what goes on at these bird strike conferences. So <clears throat> I sat there, listened to the presentations, was interested, and then they start making statements about what they're going to do for pilots and what they do for, well, we're just going to do this and this. And I'm thinking, well, you're not because there's pilots are, I'm a pilot and I understand what you're trying to do and it's not going to happen. Uh, another guy that I met there was Paul Eschenfelter. He was a <clears throat> pilot for Northwest Airlines. He did a lot of good work in this arena. He's an older gentleman. He has since retired, but uh, he's done some good work. Uh, and down in Australia, uh, there's a few pilots that are uh, involved. Uh, Brian Greaves is one. They do some good work too. So um, anyway, got involved with the bird strike, went back to another few more bird strike uh, USA committee meetings um, and then became active with the Bird Strike Committee USA as a member or um, more like a board member um, <clears throat> when I was representing NBAA, that's National Business Aviation Association. I was involved in their safety committee and formed the Bird Strike Working Group to educate business aviation pilots about the risks and hazards associated with bird strikes. Uh, what I was involved in there, I went to the World Bird Strike Association. Well, actually, it was the IBSC meeting, the last International Bird Strike Committee meeting in Norway, where the uh, a few of the Dutch people got involved, and um, they decided to revamp the IBSC into the World Bird Strike Association, uh, which I think was a good thing. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of the old guard didn't think it was a good thing, kind of a split between the old and new, but Which it always is. Um, they got involved and they changed it to the World Bird Strike Association. Uh, Rob Van Ackeren became the president and uh, I thought he did some good things with it, got more people involved, kind of focused on what the World Bird Strike Association should be. Um, I think in the old, old days, you know, let's talk about back when I was young, um, I think that the IBSC was more scientists that, that were, uh, that got involved and wrote papers and did their, their, they presented their papers and they kind of said, look how great we're doing. Well, like I said, as a pilot, I'm out there saying, no, you're not, nothing's changing. We're just doing the same thing and nothing's changing uh, as far as operations go. Now, on airports, what airport operators and biologists do, yes, things probably did change. But as a pilot, I didn't see much changes. Um, and so I thought Rob did a good job of getting more people, more stakeholders involved other than biologists and airport operators. And he did sign a, an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, with BirdLife International to get them involved because obviously that's what I talk about in a lot of my uh, uh, speeches that I do that, you know, we ultimately flight safety is the important thing here to avoid hitting birds and to avoid crashing airplanes. But on the other hand, usually when a bird meets an airplane, it doesn't end very well for the bird. So if we can prevent that from happening, we preserve birds and wildlife. Uh, and so therefore it, it's, it's beneficial for both. 
Um, <clears throat> other than that, I've been involved now for quite some time. I took over the World Bird Strike Association in Poland probably, what, four years ago, I think it was. Time flies when you're having fun. We were supposed to have a meeting last November, but of course COVID uh, put a stop to that. Uh, we were going to meet in Bangkok, uh, but now <clears throat> we did have a virtual meeting that happened in January. I thought that went very well, and now we're having another virtual meeting come in June, and for all of you, so at the, you can check the website. Yeah, at these meetings, what do you guys, uh, I mean, <clears throat> when I think of, so, I mean, I've, I, we've talked about this. I had uh, Gary Searing from the Canadian Bird Strike Association, mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, very familiar with the, uh, the what, what was it called? The, not the U.S. one or. Bird Strike Committee USA and then yeah. Bird Strike Committee Canada. I, yep. Um, yep. Yeah. So, I mean, are they kind of, I mean, do you guys work together? Are you guys, you know, in, in contact with each other or are they just kind of like your, uh, <laughs> like the redheaded stepchild compared? Because when I think of well, the World Bird Strike Association. The world, world, that's, we. You know, and it's in our charter to be to to be the voice for all the bird strike committees out there. Now, obviously, you look at the U.S. They're the they're the six thousand pound gorilla when it comes. We've had the Americans have had the uh, bird strike committee USA for so many years. It was helped formed by both the military. I think it was Gene Labouf and Ed Cleary, who was the FAA. They got involved, and I believe they were the founders of that. And then with that came the bird strike database and then internationally they had the international bird strike database and it's kind of outlined in the uh, IKO mandate on what IKO spells out each country has a CAA which is the FAA or as we say in the states but and the CAA should do something to mitigate part of their thing is to mitigate bird wildlife strikes and be that through a committee be that through a person um, and part of the thing behind this database is it's, it's uh, risk management. Identify the risks, uh, identify the hazard, mitigate the risk. Well, part of this database, that's what this database does. If you know what you're hitting, you're identifying the hazards and you can mitigate the risk. And that's, what, uh, that's the big push behind what Bird Strike Committee USA does through their education outreach is to, to educate mainly pilots of the importance of reporting. Now, one of the things going back to all these bird strike committees is uh, globally, most of these CAAs mandate that pilots and or maintenance and or airport operations report bird strikes. In the United States, it is not mandated, it's voluntary. Uh, and we've gone round and round with that to say, look, you should report. Now, that said, it's estimated that less than 50% of all bird strikes get reported. Um, we saw a spike after, of course, US Air 1549 because of what Sully did and everybody was more aware, so now we report more. But that said, um, we don't get many bird strikes. And in the countries where bird strike reporting is mandated, they still don't get 100%. They estimate they get roughly 60 to 70% of all bird strikes reported. So, and again, it's, 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 it's good for risk mitigation to understand what you're hitting, what's out there, how can the airport <clears throat> uh, managers and the wildlife biologists create a plan to mitigate the risk for the operations. 
So, so just out of curiosity, I mean, what's the mindset behind not making it, you know, a mandate that you have to re report all bird strikes? I, I think it's the carrot and the stick approach with the FAA. And I don't know how much you know with the FAA, but here in the United States, it's, it's a huge bureaucracy. And to make any changes would take forever. And, and number one, change the regulation. Talking to the uh, John Weller, who's the, US, who's the FAA wildlife biologist here in the United States. He does an outstanding job. But like he, he and I have had this discussion many times. For him to change the regulation to mandate reporting we're talking five years, probably at the minimum, 10 years at the most, because to change the language, it has to go through lawyers. They have to check it, make sure everything. Then <clears throat> the people get involved in how do we punish? You know, <clears throat> if somebody doesn't report, do we violate them? Do we send them a letter of, of uh, admonishment? Do we just say, please report? So I think it's, it's more of, hey, let's, if we educate people the importance of reporting, that's that's how they try to get people to report. And they do a good job. Bird Trade Committee USA does a good job of that. They go to these conventions. They go to uh, coming up uh, Sun and Fun next week. <clears throat> They're going to educate pilots. And I've done the booth there. And it's amazing. Every pilot comes up 95% of the time. Let me tell you about the bird strike I have. They, they go through this bird strike and, and we say, well, did you report it? That's the next Thing we ask and they said well no because this that and that and one of the things the examples I use is up at Oshkosh this guy came up talked about his super cub and he had bird strikes and <clears throat> I said well did you report he goes no it happened at my my grass strip up in northern Wisconsin it really didn't matter and I said well it does matter because if you report it and uh, the Smithsonian Institution identifies it say it's a, a green-headed warbler and then we find out that Milwaukee has had an increase in green-headed warblers, something they haven't seen in a while, or Minneapolis has started seeing an increase. Now we see a pattern, and these bigger airports can then identify where this bird is, and they can mitigate the risk. So it's important. And when you educate the pilots on that, they go, oh, okay, I get it now. And so that helps. And, and most pilots, if, it, if it's for aviation safety, they'll do something about it. They'll expend, you know, expend the effort. <clears throat> now, as far as what I do as an airline pilot, uh, I look at it at both an airline pilot and a corporate pilot. I'm a professional pilot and that's my job to, to identify risk for other pilots. And just like a pirate, when I have adverse weather, I report it. Uh, so if we have a bird strike, I should report it. Now, <clears throat> now you talked about like changing you know, changing the the way things are done here in the States. You know, yeah. I've talked to, you know, recently we had um, Mike Bierman on from DTEC. And okay. uh, yeah, he, you know, he, he talked about avian radar and how, yes. yeah, we use a lot of that in military bases um, here in the States, but commercially it's pretty much non-existent. And a lot, but they do most of, they, they do quite a bit of business overseas. Do you see yes. in your in, in your professional opinion is, is it just easier to do stuff overseas? I mean, like you said, you know, it's got to go through lawyers. It's got to go through this five, yes. six, seven years from now. Maybe this, maybe that. <clears throat> I mean, what's your thoughts on that? 
Well, yeah, I think Avian Radar is awesome. And I think you look what uh, Detect has done, and I think they're behind the, uh, <clears throat> the bird, uh, the BAM, which is the bird awareness model. And, the, uh, <clears throat> and that's what I tried to do in, in business aviation. <clears throat> Most of our, our operators in business aviation, they have access to internet on the airplanes. So one thing I, I would educate them on is, look, you, everybody can add, access the, the BAM or the AHAS. Avian hazard awareness tool that uses either uh, NICSRED radar or historical data. And the example I use is say you're going into San Diego Lindbergh Field. Well, Lindbergh Field is not necessarily on there when the drop down men menu is, but Navy North Island is, which is two miles away. So if you look at the AHOS for Navy North Island and it's elevated to severe that will in your, increase your awareness in San Diego Lindbergh Field. You might want to ask the, ask the controller if that happened. Now, <clears throat> as far as avian radar goes, yes, I think it is easier for other countries to do this. They're small. The bureaucracy isn't that big. They have put a price on aviation safety. It's important to them. Um, but that said, avian radar is not the, two, the one catch all that's going to solve everything. It's another tool in your tool bag. Um, I think another thing is you're going to see here in the United States, as far as bureaucracy goes, is <clears throat> an airport says, hey, we're going to spend X amount of dollars on this uh, avian radar, and it's going to save all these airplanes. Well, then you have a control tower with air traffic controllers in it, and they put this avian radar in there, and the air traffic controllers here in the States go, okay, how are you going to train me? That's going to take more time. You're going to have to provide another person in the tower to monitor this avian radar. What's my responsibility? What's my liability in case I misread this radar? And now your X amount of dollars becomes 10 times X amount of dollars, and it just goes out the window. So, um, again, air traffic control is very rarely involved in these bird strike meetings. Uh, we have tried to talk to them. Uh, the biggest pet peeve I have with air traffic control as a pilot is when I go to these airports on the ATIS, which is the, the warning of the broadcast where we get our weather, at the end they usually say use caution birds in vicinity. And I went through a phase of every time I check in, I said, you, you're, you're advertising birds in vicinity. Oh yeah, we always have birds in the vicinity. Well then, okay, tell me where. That would be nice. Um, there was a gentleman with the FAA, uh, Duncan, I think it's John Duncan with FAA standards. He gave a presentation about pilot uh, risk-based decision-making. And my question to him is, okay, for me to make an accurate risk-based decision, I need accurate hazard information. And using this broad scope of use caution birds in a city does nothing. In fact, it does the opposite because pilots hear it all the time and they just become, uh, it's crying wolf. Um, or, you know, driving down the road, use caution, there's an accident ahead on exit 51. Well, for 10 days straight, you see there's this sign. And then on the 11th day, uh, there is an accident and you plow into somebody because you, you're not paying attention. So they need to do a better job. But then again, it's training the air traffic controllers. They need to understand. The biggest problem I have with that is at two in the morning, when they have used caution birds in the city. And I asked the controller, how do you know? 
well, they're all, well, how do you know? You don't have a radar, you don't have a visual. So it's just 90% of the time, 95% of the time, there's a box on there when you have a bird strike. Were you warned of birds in the vicinity? Well, air traffic control's off the hook now because they warned you. So it's, it, uh, it took care of that problem. So uh, that's the biggest problem I have. Just give me a, hey, birds, birds reported to the north, birds reported to the south, uh, a flock or a one single large bird, whatever it is. And we've gone round and round, even in the World Bird Strike Association, to find a large flock, to find a medium flock, to find a small flock. What does a large bird mean? What does a small bird mean? What's a medium bird? You know, that would be ide ideal for us just to say, use caution, large flock of medium birds reported to the north, moving south, uh, five miles east of the airport. That's, that to me is accurate hazard information to where I can make a decision now. And <clears throat> the Aussies, they've done a really good job. I think they're probably one of the best uh, bird strike committees in the world. Wildlife, they're... Uh, uh, Oh, what's the name of their group? I'm drawing a blank here. But anyway, um, the Australian committee, they came out with NOTAMs, using NOTAMs uh, for uh, the, one of their biggest uh, animals they strike is bats, these flying foxes, which are about two to three pounds. And at night, these, these bats traverse the airports. And... So there was a notum that came out, three-page notum, graphical notum. It was great because it talked about the flying fox. It talked about where it was and what time you can expect it. Now, it's an east-west runway, and these flying foxes were <clears throat> up on the east side of the runway. Well, maybe I want to land to the east and take off to the west to avoid these if it's a no-win situation. And as a pilot, I can look at this, and I can ask, I can say, hey, what's up with the flying foxes? Do you, are there any, if they have a radar, we don't show it out there, or we do show it out there and it's over here. So I can make a better risk-based decision. Um, the other thing is, if I go to another airport and it talks about a flying fox, now I understand some of its behaviors and uh, some of the patterns that it exhibits based on this notum that I read. So it's an educational thing for the pilots. Um, they do some great, they talked about in Australia, doing more educating pilots. Um, I think if you look at our pilots, as they develop a civilian pilot, gets probably maybe five hours of bird strike awareness training in their whole career. Where in the military, we do a good job because we're a captive audience, we have to do it. We have the bird, the BAM and the AOS, and we have the BASH programs at all the military bases. And pilots are educated about it. Now, so if you talk to a military trained pilot and say, uh, you know, the bird, bird strike risk is medium, they kind of understand, they know, they've been educated on that. A civilian pilot will have no idea what to do. Uh, you, you talked a little bit, you talked a lot about obviously, you know, the military and you come from a military background or you served in the military as well. Um, mm -hmm. What I've noticed obviously is a lot of former pilots are now and have always kind of transitioned to commercial piloting and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So you kind of know both sides there. Yep. Um, has that helped you in your career? Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, my, 
my education as a safety officer in the military is carried over. I was also a safety representative for the unions at the airlines I worked for. Um, and I also was an FAA safety team representative. And one of the things I do is I educate pilots on bird strike awareness, risks, and all that, like I talked about, the importance of reporting. Um, when I was with NBAA Safety Committee, I started there to educate pilots. And, you know, the big thing with business aviation, that to me is the highest risk out there of any form of aviation. Um, now, of course, military flying low level, <clears throat> that, that's a high risk, but they mitigate that risk through the A-House and the BAM. And they under, they'll shut down a low level before they even go flying. Whereas you have these business people that want to go to a factory out in the middle of nowhere in Alabama in their Gulf Stream because there's a 5,000-foot runway. Well, out in the middle of nowhere, you have deer. You have all these things. You, you, you call the airport. And some of the things I would recommend is call the airport manager and say, okay, what's – What's your biggest threat out there, wildlife-wise? And they'll tell you. They'll say, hey, we have deer. We have, in September, we have migrating geese that go into this pond just to the south. Okay, I understand that. Um, now, you can mitigate for things like that. Understand that you don't want to land at, at dawn or dusk because the deer will be moving. And that's what I talk about, too, is wildlife behavior, just like humans. They move at, at sunrise and sunset. And we yeah, see... sometimes, you know, it's a lot easier for us to change our schedule rather than to try and uh, try and change their Correct. schedule. Uh, yeah. You know, um, we, 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 we yeah. work a lot. So the... Yeah, we work a lot, obviously, in that realm um, of, yep. you know, trying to time it right. But it's a it's a it's a heavy <laughs> it's a heavy ass to, to tell, you know, a commercial airline, hey, hold off here. Uh, you know, right. it's, it's, uh, it's the middle of the rut or breeding season for deer. They're going to be out running all over the place. You've yep. got nine holes in your fence. Like you, you don't want to take care of it. And, and what I've kind of noticed and even talking to you and talking to a lot of other uh, industry experts, <clears throat> information obviously is power, right? It, it, it's also right. educational, you know, uh, yeah. and then it's also awareness. And sometimes it's it's uh, kind of that you know I'd rather say you say sorry than than know what I actually did. Uh, it's it's better to beg, beg for forgiveness and ask yeah. for permission. Yeah, that too, right? So like in talking to this, it, it sounds like not only are other countries doing a better job than we are, not only are yeah. you know is the information out there, not only do you have you know airport certified wildlife biologists like our staff and others telling you know airports hey here's the hazards here's the risk this is mm -hmm. what you need to do but it's a slow process how do you feel about that oh definitely um yeah insurance companies they they're the ones that know because they pay the they pay the uh they pay the repair costs every year and they know, they understand exactly what the, what the price is that's going on. Um, now you say that, you know, nothing's changed. Well, Richard Dolbear, who's kind of the giant in this industry, he's been around, he was the father of behind the, uh, the uh, database here in the United States. And um, I can't imagine how many lives he, we can attribute to him. He's done a great job, but, 
it was after USA 1549, the first bird strike committee meeting, bird strike committee USA. And Richard got up and he said, if everybody would have died in USA 1549, what would we be doing differently? And that's the exact thing. And then we go to the meeting just, just in Canada two years ago. And the third day of that meeting, the uh, Russian A321 crashed in the cornfield because it lost both engines and nobody died. So until people start dying, things aren't going to change. The thing I worry about here, and especially the bird strike committee, <clears throat> is that we get politicians involved and they say, okay, now we need to write regulations about if there are birds in the area, we're going to shut the airport down. Well, you as a biologist and in the industry understand, number one, that's not feasible. Number two is we can, we can work together. We share the share the airspace we can share the there are certain times that maybe you should do some things differently and there are certain times that maybe we should shut down operations just for an hour or two or maybe delay our takeoff like you were talking about earlier delay the arrival because of the rut or whatever so we want to work together to get things like this fixed um yes other countries do a really good job of that um some of these airlines that fly into these countries they like Emirates I think they do a pretty good job of looking at okay the bird wildlife mitigation what's our hazards out there and again back to my original point if I call any biologist or airport operations guy and I say what's your top three on this date and in September at sunrise and sunset what's your biggest threat for me as an as a as a pilot and they'll be able to tell me that thing Australia again did that before Alice Springs had a Instead of in there, uh, in the United States, we have the uh, airport flight AFD, the little green book that tells you, okay, this is what you're, what you're going to see when you get here. And these are the hazards, you know, um, use caution. There's uh, the wind tends to shift at certain times, whatever it is, long-term effects. Well, in there, it usually says, use caution, birds, deer and birds on in the vicinity of the airport. Well, when? When are they there? And they're not there 24-7 because you wouldn't have an operation. What's the big thing? In Australia, they did. They had their top 10, and they tell you what they are, where they are, what their behaviors are, and um, it, they, they do a great job. So you've been flying your whole life. How many, uh, how many bird strikes uh, have you been a part of? I've probably been a, had 15 to 20 bird strikes. And did you uh, bad them? strikes. The worst one I had was coming out of Nairobi in the middle of the night in a C5. And we got, we heard the thump, 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 but we didn't understand what it was. And this is even before the bash was a big thing. The big, the watershed event for the Air Force was the uh, AWACS crash up in Elmendorf. This was before that. Um, and that's when the Air Force really got involved in bird strike mitigation. But we took off out of Nairobi, heard the thumps. And then about five hours later, when the sun finally came up, we were headed to Europe. We saw the blood everywhere. And in fact, the captain's side of the airplane, the windshield was totally covered in blood. Um, and, you know, coming out of Nairobi in the middle of the night, and there's no, no, no moon. It was completely dark. Couldn't see anything. So when the sun finally came up, we could see that we had hit probably two to 300 bats. And uh, wow, <laughs> that many? Way. Yeah, oh, yeah, everywhere, everywhere. So, um, 
and then I've had the one-offs, you know, the, the, the gulls, the, the geese, the, you know, being in a C5, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty easy, uh, you know, to hit something and it, it won't do much damage. Um, now the smaller airplanes, when I flew corporate, a couple of times I had to evade. Um, that's the nice thing about small airplanes. You have more, more maneuverability. Um, and then in the airlines, uh, yeah, I've had my share of bird strikes in the airlines. And the big thing there is writing it up. And, and it, again, we get to this pilot mentality of <clears throat> pilots are, pilots are like birds. They're lazy. They don't want to do paperwork. <laughs> they don't want to do anything. So, and this exact, this exact thing happened to me. We landed, I thought we had a bird strike. So I looked at the captain. I said, I think we had a bird strike. He went over the top of the over the top of my windshield. And I said, I think we had a bird strike. I think this is on landing. So even if we didn't hit the bird, I think the, the bow wave of the airplane did enough damage to the bird where you probably have a dead bird. It was a small bird, probably on the runway. So I called tower and I said, I think we had a bird strike. Well, the captain looks at me and goes, what'd you do that for? He goes, I don't think we did. And I said, well, I think we did. And he, now I created work for him because he has to fill out a maintenance report on the airplane. He has to fill out a bird strike report. And Tower has to go out there and check the runway. Well, I'd rather be safe than sorry in that aspect. But again, pilots are lazy. So what I'd like to see with the World Bird Strike Association, if we get a world database going, an app. Can't we get an app for our phone? And I fill out, I'm flying into, say I'm going into Sydney, Australia, and we have a bird strike. Well, I call up my app and I fill it out. And with the data that we have out now, is I put in American 79 on this date in Sydney. It automatically knows it took off at LA at this time. It landed at Sydney at this time. It calls up the ATIS weather. It automatically populates all these fields for me that I don't have to do. The only thing I have to say is, well, I think it occurred at 1,000 feet and I was doing 180 knots. Even that, if I put in 1,000 feet, they can go back in the data and they can tell me exactly what my ground speed was. Um, <clears throat> and then if I, fill that out and I hit send, well, it automatically will send it to the Australian, the AAAWHG, the Australian people, they get a bird strike report. And since I'm flying a US registered aircraft, I need to fill out that, it'll automatically send it to the Americans. Um, so- I mean, that's not, that's, that's, not that that, that, that's not groundbreaking technology. So- No, no. Well, I, I don't understand. I mean, well, I think after this podcast, our next uh, conversation is uh, you and I drawing up a business plan. <laughs> well, I've talked it. to people. There are some guys in Australia that have this. They've got this, and they explained it all to me. It's just a matter of the money and the funding and the time and the effort. And um, I just think we need to really push IKO. IKO needs to step in and, yeah. uh, and huh. to, to take care of this. So, But, again, nobody's dying, so it's not going to change Yeah, until well. it does. <laughs> Unfortunately, I mean, even, I mean, unfortunately, you know, now, even in our country, in the United States here, I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> we're seeing a lot of that happen right now. So, um, right. It, all right. So another big career, you know, thing. Um, so you're a part, you're, you know, a, a key role in uh, developing the uh, global action plan. Uh, give me yes. the rundown on, on that and, uh, and, and where all that started. Well, that's mainly to get 
behind what Rob Van Ankeren did, he said, look, we need to get other than wildlife biologists and airport operators involved because they all understand what we do, but we need to educate everybody else. We need to get more pilots involved, stakeholders, pilots, air traffic controllers, um, wildlife organizations like Bird, Wild, Bird Life International, um, insurance companies. Like I said before, the insurance companies know exactly what's going on out there. Now, some of their data is, you know, uh, protected and right, they should protect it. But when it comes to safety, they understand, they, they will work and if they can mitigate it. Now, in my discussions with aviation insurance companies, most of these bird strikes are written off as an act of God. There's really nothing we can, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Well, if you, you as an airport wildlife company, you understand that if you don't do your job, you may be liable and you take that seriously. So I think what we need is the insurance companies to start going after these airports that don't take responsibility, that don't do the required work. I mean, I don't know how many airports that was the thing we did in the military. Do you have a bash plan? Yes, it's right here. Well, it's in this binder on the, okay, so you pull up the binder and it says, okay, it says here you're supposed to have meetings twice a year. When was the last meeting? Oh, that was four years ago. Well, obviously you're not doing your plan, so you would be liable for it. Um, but again, things aren't going to change until the insurance companies start driving it. So we need to get all these people involved to get things changed. And that's part of the, the impetus behind the global action plan is to get others involved. Um, I know that flight safety just came out for the flight safety international or yeah, is the, who is it? No, the flight safety foundation. I'm sorry. Flight safety foundation just came up with the global action plan for the mitigation of runway incursions, run, runway excursions. Um, so we need to do that. We, we, somebody needs to get flight safety foundation involved in the, the global action plan for the mitigation of bird wildlife strikes, but they're not a problem. The reason they did that with the runway excursions is because it is a big problem. That's what, that's probably the number one thing is, is that's really breaking airplanes and killing people right now. What's your, um, what's your favorite part about being, uh, being the president of the WBA? Like what, uh, what are some of the highlights, I guess you could say of, uh, you know, you, you you love, uh, you know, I guess you could say, uh, yeah, <laughs> your career-defying moments. <laughs> right. Uh, just uh, dealing with these people who, who have the passion for flight safety that I have, you know, uh, especially around the world. I've met some incredible people, um, legends in the field, Yossi in, in Israel, um, uh, the Italians, the, the Spanish, the, the Russians. Isabel Metz is doing some great work, uh, research on, uh, she's from Germany. She's doing research on this. Uh, the Aussies, the, the Nepalese, oh, the, the, the Kiwis, everybody, meeting these people and understanding what they're doing and then finding out, under, meeting them and understand that they, they're spending their whole life and career on, on trying to make aviation safer. You know, I just volunteer for this. This is this is a volunteer. I get no money for this. I spend more money than I can ever, you know. Uh, th most of these people, that's what they do. They're biologists. They work. They get paid for it. That's their 
that's their job. I fly airplanes. I get paid for that. It's my uh, volunteer work. So nobody's paying you uh, $50,000 to uh, appear on podcasts? No, <laughs> not yet. I'm waiting for that check to show up. <laughs> that probably bounced with Sully's. <laughs> Did he sign your cast on your leg right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he won't sign anything for a price. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be $5 and you can yep. you know you can't keep the pen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. um, yeah, that's cool. I mean, so I don't know. I've always been fascinated with uh, – and I love talking to people who are well-traveled. Uh, what are some of the, your, I don't know, what are some of the favorite places you like to travel? I mean, obviously being, you know, associated with the WBA and these conferences that are all over the world, uh, when you see one pop up, <laughs> is there any place well, that you circle a calendar on? It, it, yeah, it's all, it's all well and good. Like the, the first meeting I went to in Norway, that was great because, it's Norway, someplace I've never been. I got to go to Prekestolen. It's just the, you know, the, the rock and, and to see those things. But you got to understand these meetings aren't about um, going out and looking around. You're in meetings all day and you're meeting these people. And the back to the question about what I enjoy is, for example, on <clears throat> the dinner night that we had in Norway, I sat next to uh, Tim Nahara and, you know, chewed his brain. He's a very smart gentleman. He he's, runs a radar company uh, up in Canada, and Buffalo, Canada, across the states or across the uh, line there. He does both. He, he's yeah, a Buffalo's great guy. pretty much Canada, so. It's, it's yeah, kind of exactly. <laughs> so, but, you know, meeting Tim and chewing his brain and then going to Mexico and meeting other people and, and then getting involved with, with – uh, Rob and uh, all the people from the Netherlands and the Italians and just meeting them and and uh, but uh, as far as traveling yes I've traveled to every place but Antarctica and hands down Cape Town South Africa is the pretty city in the world nothing beats Cape Town nice. I spent many time much time there that was my first airline job and uh, you you can't beat Cape Town South Africa for the scenery and the the people and the wine and the food and it's just it's it's unbelievable unbelievable so go there in a heartbeat yeah so i'm a, I'm a bigger guy i love food mm -hmm. and i love exotic yep. food right yep but, uh, i gotta imagine at some of these uh these world conferences you know do they uh do they kind of like influence the local cuisine into uh that's somebody? what we tried to do yeah you know in poland we had a nice meeting we had it in a polish restaurant with you know and that's what's that's what's beautiful about it um yeah to have some of the craziest things you've ever uh you've ever had the, the pleasure of eating while you're you're well we used to or... play a game back in the military we used to play a game guess what you're eating we'd go to the tapas and and everybody takes turn picking out okay what's the weirdest grossest looking thing and you eat it and whoever spits it out has to pay the bill so um, we, we, you know, four or five of us. And then, but some of the best food I've ever had was doing that. And um, it, yeah, it's, it's always great to, to go on the local fair and see, but, you know, as air crew, we're creatures of habit. We go to the same hotels, you know, and especially in the airline, stay in the same hotel, go to the same bars, go to the same restaurants and, you know, walk around, do the same things. But um, every once in a while, I get off the beaten path and see some things that, 
that are nice. And, and that's the nice thing about having some time off to go around. Now, COVID obviously is a big stop to that since we go to these places and have to sit in our hotel room and order, oh, yeah. order, uh, yeah, room service. Or so, uh, in Australia, get a get a brown bag thrown at you and said, here, here's your food. <laughs> Don't come out until it's time to go. So, what are what are some of the things that COVID has kind of uh, made you made your uh, the WBA do a couple of things differently? I know you talked about your uh, your virtual conferences. How did that? Uh, uh, it's, I you know what virtual conferences for us have been kind of hit or miss. You yeah. know because nothing beats you know face to face interaction and, exactly. and every, it's so weird yeah, doing the, these virtual conferences sometimes. And usually, I mean, like the host, it's great to get the information. Yeah. It's great to get the information, but again, if if it's a presentation that I've seen before, if I'm at the meeting, I'll just go out in the hallway and get a cup of coffee, and then, gee, I'm out there, and I, I'll be sitting with somebody else, and that's where you have a nice discussion about, you know, what they're doing in Israel, the latest thing that, you know, and you, ha you meet these people, you, you get their life story, you understand, you know, you make a connection. That's what I miss the most, and that's what really for me to be able to call personally on um, some of these people that, that, you know, I've met personally and I can say, okay, um, here, this is great. It's nice to talk to you. Um, that's what I miss the most. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough. And it's tough to, especially for us now too, is being global. When's the best time to have a meeting? Late at night in Europe, early morning in Europe. Early morning in Europe means late at night in Australia. Um, and early morning in, you know, middle of the night in United States. It all depends on who's your target audience. Now, that's the other thing in the WBA we've tried to steer away from is, is North America and Europe are the dominant people behind the International Bird Strike Committee. Uh, John Allen, who found, basically was one of the founders, from Britain, he did a great job of, of standing up the committee, but Rob's big push was let's get people from South America, Asia, uh, the Middle East, we really need to get them more involved in all this. Europeans and the Americans have well-developed committees. <clears throat> That's well and good, but for some of these other countries to get involved and in, to, you know, for, a, <clears throat> for Nepal to stand up their bird strike committee, to be able to talk to John Weller and, and uh, Mike Beecher and those people at these meetings to say, hey, how do we do it? How do you do it? I'm on a limited budget. What's important for me to do? So, um, yeah, that's the thing that that, uh, that the WBA is, is best at. Nice. So before I get your master's picks and we talk golf. Yep. <laughs> all right. Give me um, – Give me your closing thoughts. You know, um, obviously we went over a ton, a ton of information, and clearly yep. your wealth of knowledge. Um, what are uh, just yeah? Talk about the WBA, what you guys got coming up, um, how to get involved, and just uh, give me give me a look in the in the mind of Gary Cook here. Well, the big time. thing is we're online. I encourage people to get online and to join. Um, as of the last meeting, just if you show up, you're a member. Um, membership is, it used to be you show up at the meeting and you're a member. Um, and, but of course you had to pay the registration fee and all that. With the last meeting we had, it was online, it was free registration. And 
you become a member. We'd like people to get involved with that. Go to the website, wba.com, I believe it is. Just search World Bird Strike Association, and it'll take you to the website. That way you can uh, sign up. You can and sign up for our next meeting coming up in June. It's going to be a roundtable event where um, it's probably going to be four or five sessions of of one of them. I'll be the moderator sitting around with four or five other airport operators slash biologists slash uh, safety officers, and um, we'll just take the presentation, you know, take the conversation wherever it goes. The nice thing about these these meetings is people can send their questions in right away and say, hey, I got this question. How do you handle this? Well, we can go around the room and, and kind of steer the conversation on what's best. And what's that's what you know, uh, being in this business, what's best for uh, Israel is not necessarily best for for the United States, which is not necessarily best for Thailand. So you have to understand these these different things and and uh, and how to work it. Nice. All right, let's get on to 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 the the most serious question. Who's winning the 2021 Masters Golf Tournament? I had... me, how about this? How about this? Give me your top three, your studs, right? And then give me some dark horses. Uh, dark horse Abraham answer. Uh, uh, let's see who else. I just put this in my picks. Uh, I picked, uh, Shoffley, Xander Shoffley, Rory McIlroy, JT. Okay. Tommy Fleetwood, Tommy Fleetwood and Billy Horschel probably my dark horses. Ooh, I do like the Billy Horschel pick. That's sneaky. That's sneaky. And, and yeah. Fleetwood hasn't won in a, in a while, you know, maybe uh, – and the yeah. Masters typically has that, I don't know, a lot of first-time uh, – <laughs> uh, aside yeah. from last year with DJ just crushing the field, but – Yep. Yeah. It's going to be no, interesting I, see if they dry it out and get these guys. It's a great golf course. I had the chance to play it once. And, all right, uh, I'm going to need you to talk a little bit more about that right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I couldn't go because my mother-in-law passed away. So oh. – <laughs> um, but I've been there a few times. My, the CEO that I flew around was a member there. So I've been there on the grounds a few times. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's definitely, that's definitely a bucket list for me. So I'm going to actually, you're going to have to pull some strings, fly yeah. into Rochester, pick me up. And <laughs> fly out. well, the best thing is to go to the practice round. Practice rounds the best. Cause then you get, you get, take your cell phone, you get to run around and you don't have to worry about, being a patron and you know getting yelled at and, nice and, uh, no it's a great place uh and uh, it's fun to watch great time of year to to get spring kicked off so how did it feel last year having that tournament in november just like everything else in the last year just just messed up weird yeah. you know typical Awkward. hey i'm glad they got it out i'm glad they got to play it you know um it's it's going to be interesting 10 years down the road when we look back at this and go, okay, well, was that necessary or was it not necessary? Maybe we should have done this instead of doing this. We shouldn't have done that. And we should have done that. I don't know. It's, and it's hard to say, you know, and, you know, in the bird strike arena, that was the big thing 
when when air traffic just died we what we they hadn't seen that low a low i think it's a passenger count was back in the 50s the lowest passenger count we had was a normal day in 1958 so when you look at that that really puts in, in perspective and the number of flights that just you know and the airline business just got devastated um and to watch uh freight air freight go through the roof um that was interesting to see because that's where uh, the airline i worked for we 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 made a killing of they flying freight we just we don't put people up top we just put cargo in the belly and they make money they do good job making money so um but with the reduction in air uh air operations and the number of bird strikes and that was a big push um we found out that um you know the the, the number of strikes is roughly the same so the strike rate went significantly higher um so that was something to worry about yeah what i found what we found in in our industry with uh you know obviously um wildlife management you know we had a lot more room to operate on our clients airport because there was just nobody flying so um we could you know it, it we had we were busy let's put it that way yes but with less air traffic more birds more wildlife were coming in you know yep and there wasn't and the, increased the normal air traffic to scare them away yep yeah nothing to scare them away nothing yeah so it was kind of a catch-22 you know so um yeah now that it's picking up and picking up and picking up and picking up and getting closer and closer to what we yep. once thought was normal um yeah, definitely that strike rate is gonna is gonna continue to climb. So, uh, and yeah. we'll end on yeah, we'll end on that. Um, one just a reminder: um, if you want to get a hold of Gary, uh, you can contact him through the World Bird Strike Association website, which is the WorldBirdStrike.com. Um, there is a uh, email address on there. So if you mm -hmm. have any questions for Gary or anything for the World Bird Strike Association, please, we encourage you to reach out to them. Uh, Gary, hope you had a good time. I really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate your time. Yes. And um, once again, this is uh, Airport Wild Podcast presented to you by LoomakersWildlifeManagement.com. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to our podcast. Uh, leave a review. We encourage you to contact the WBA and um, attend any one of their conferences. Also, uh, follow us on Facebook and follow us on YouTube and Instagram. Uh, we'll see you next time.